Hello friends, welcome back to Imago Gay. A play on the term Imago Day because the dignity of LGBTQ lives matter. Today I have a special guest, Dr. D. Knight, a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma and healing. Today we are focusing on healing from trauma and in particular religious trauma. If you like to follow Dr. Knight on Twitter, you can do so at Dr. D E E Knight as a knight in shining armor. When I talk about trauma, I always have the example that I believe that trauma is any wounding we experience where the healing is not readily available for the amount of wounding we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. That could be physical wounding. It can be psychological and emotional wounding, right? Let me use the example. I bought a whole bunch of little graters and choppers and all of these different things because I just knew I would be cooking one of them. It had a really sharp blade. And so I put the little slicer in and it didn't go in all the way. And I slapped down the edge of it. Well, of course, I overshot and slapped my finger right down on the little crisscross blades. And when I looked at my finger, like I could see that there was like I could see the bone. I experienced a trauma to my finger. Very different from if I prick my finger to check my blood sugar. In general, unless you have a blood clotting issue, you're going to experience a healing that's pretty comparable to the wounding that you experience. You're not going to be bleeding still the next day. It's not going to be in pain still a few hours later, right? That's the difference between what I would call trauma. However, if somebody gave you a whole bunch of pinpricks, you're probably going to feel it the next day, right? right? So tiny things can also build up to be traumatic things. Little tiny experiences over and over, microaggressions as we call them, right? Having to deal with racial trauma, having to deal with a church that is rejecting of you and not accepting of the whole you and yet telling you to be your whole self, be your full self, but your whole self and your full self is not who they agree with you being, right? that's traumatic as well. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes we experience little tiny traumas that build up over time. Sometimes we experience a larger event um, and that's traumatic as well. Either way, if there's not enough healing available for the wounding that you experience, that's what I would consider to be a trauma. I love this definition of trauma and understanding the impact of trauma on our lives is especially important, especially for the LGBTQ community. Before we start today's conversation, I'd just like to introduce myself. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenault, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest today, Dr. D. Knight. So just even just before we get started, like, where do you find yourself right now? Like, what are the conversations that you find yourself gravitating towards? Or are you working on a new book? What's that look like for you? Yes. Um, okay. So I'll start at the back end of that, which is, are you working on a new book? And I'm so excited that I have submitted copy for editing. Just curious, what are the, what's the name of the book? Um, so the title that I want to have for the book, I don't know what will happen because I am intending to go the traditional publishing route with this particular book, but the title that I want and the title that I have in my head and the title that I'm very kind of sold to (laughs) is out of the darkness and into the dark. And Mm. the general idea is coming out of experiences of darkness, which I think most of us have on this planet. Sure. And so somebody, I was on someone's panel uh, a few weeks ago and they're like, how are you doing? And I was like, eh, kind of, okay, I'm doing all right. And they're like, was something going on? And I was like, 
it's March, whatever, 2020. That's all <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's going on. Okay? Right. And today I'm just, eh. <laughs> I can lie to you and be like, I'm doing great. Right. I wasn't doing great that day. I was like, I didn't want to cancel on you. So here I am. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, um, and I just, I, I personally tend to be real about those things simply mm. because I don't want to encourage the society we currently live in, which is where you ask people, Hey, how you doing? And they say, fine, I'm, I'm good. And they're, yeah. they're thinking about killing themselves. Right. Like, yeah. I don't want to encourage that. Like, I really want to live in a world where we can be real with each other, where we can stop these social rules that are killing all of us um, mm. and where we could be ourselves and deal with the realities that sometimes it's, you know, April 20th, 2022. And it's just hard, yeah. <laughs> you know, and life is life is difficult today. And so um, book is about uh, coming out of experiences of darkness and going back in, not for the purposes of just sitting in the dark in uh, being in the darkness, but what, why do we go back? Right. Um, my mother-in-law who, when I asked her about going to counseling, like for herself, mm -hmm. <laughs> hit, hit, she was like, I don't want to live in the past. I'm not going to live in the past. And I was like, well, if you have an experience where your house burns down, you don't decide to not go back to the house. Like you need to go back and revisit what the burn damage was. You need to know if there's anything that's worth salvaging from that, from that house, right. right. From that uh, environment, you need to know, like, how do we rebuild going forward? You don't just, you don't go there to live there. You're not going to live in a burnt down home. Right. And so yeah. the whole idea is how do we come out of these experiences of darkness and why do we go back in? We go back in number one for addressing ourselves and the healing that we need, but also so that we can help others heal as well. That's how we heal others is by going back and being in their darkness with them. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I think along with myself and I'm sure a lot of other people who are listening, um, especially like when you're on that journey of being an LGBTQ member, or maybe you just came out or maybe you're trying to figure out what your new community looks like. There's a lot of deconstruction that's happening, but not a whole lot of reconstruction, right? Like it takes a while to actually go through and say, okay, well, what pieces do I want to take with me from this and bring forward in my new experiences or how I want to build my faith or my community? So yeah, I think that'd be really cool to talk about. So Awesome. And I love what you said there, because that's something that I mentioned as well, is that we don't always have to polish every piece from the past. Hmm. Um, you know, when I was little, I broke one of my mom's faces. And uh, now I did a really good job of gluing it to pat on my back for that. I <laughs> uh, glued it together and I didn't have all of the pieces. But guess what? That face there as pretty as ever with the backside forward. And yeah. I really didn't need to pick up every little shard and every list. Some parts of it were crushed. It was dust. Um, and yeah. I didn't need every single piece to make the whole vase and to make it look beautiful again, right? And to allow it to serve its purpose. We really don't have to go back and polish every single piece from our past. Some things need to be destroyed and left in the past, right? Yeah. Um, so I really love what you said there about you know, the picking up of pieces. And oftentimes we try so hard to make the pieces fit and they're not going to fit. Some pieces don't need to go forward with us. And so that that's really insightful what you said there. Thank you. Yeah, I, well, I'm excited to get into this and thinking maybe we could just start with an introduction and you can like introduce yourself to the audience, who you are and some of your background. You know, it's so weird saying this sometimes, uh -huh. but I've gotten comfortable with who I am. <laughs> so Dr. I D. Knight. Say, I, thank you. I am Dr. <laughs> D. Knight. So that's one. But I, I often start off by saying, so like Dr. D. Knight, I am a kind person and I value kindness. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm perfect in every situation. My children were accosted when I was a few yards away about wearing a mask by someone who thought that they shouldn't be wearing a mask. 
and I cussed that person out. And that, that's yeah. the reality. My uncle was like, you cursed? And I was like, yeah, um, I cursed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like that's, that's what happened. And I wish I were kinder in that moment and maybe perhaps thinking about what that person might have been going through. But I wasn't. I cussed them out and I cussed out the people who were onlookers and did nothing about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so that's the reality is that even though I consider my baseline kindness, I don't always have the kindness to give. I, sometimes I think to myself, I hope somebody was kind to that person today because they were getting on my nerves and I was short with them. Yeah. Right. And so I consider myself first and foremost, that my baseline is kindness and also joy. I, I'm full of kindness and joy and I find joy in small things. So that's uh, that's some of who I am. Also, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a speaker, author, mother, uh, wife, and those are the things <laughs> that kind of describe who I am. I love that. I love the, to get away from this, you know, what do you do as though that's who you are, right? I think, yeah. I think what you do shows what you're passionate about. So maybe I'll fra- reframe the question. What are you passionate about? <laughs> I am very passionate about wholeness. I am mm. passionate about wholeness and healing because I think that healing is a continual work. I don't know that we're ever healed uh, with a past tense and nothing else uh, is going to be, uh, is going to happen for us. You know, one of the ways that I actually end that book is by discussing the fact that until my dying day, there will probably be more of me to discover, more of me to love, more of me to hold tenderly, right? And so I believe in the process of healing and that it's lifelong. And I've considered the alternative, which is that you can not be healing and still living your life. In fact, uh, Dr. Tama hmm. uh, Bryant Davis said uh, the other day, she said, you can be busy, but not healed. And right. I was like, oof. speak that word, right? We can busy ourselves with the things that we do and the titles that we have and still not be healed and still not live live a life where we're constantly healing. But I I want to forever be a work in progress. Like I want to forever be healing and growing and changing my ideas about things. And I think that that is so powerful and important for living on planet Earth. It's so true. It's like, you're never going to take a bath so well that you never have to take one again, right? Come on. <laughs> Come gotta, on. <laughs> you got to keep going through the process every yes. day, right? Yeah. So what got you interested in being a clinical psychologist? A little background on that. I Okay, so a couple of things. The first uh-huh. thing is that I really believe that I was probably somewhere subconsciously not even aware of the fact that I was trying to heal myself. I was mm. trying to look for a pathway forward from my own traumatic experiences. So I probably in some way gravitated into this field for that reason. And I do believe that God guided me as well. So I believe that there is that aspect, but also I tell people don't do what I did, but at the same time, do what I did, which Mm -hmm. is I went out and I tried different things. And I thought to myself, what class am I putting forth the least effort and making the best grade. <laughs> oh, so, interesting. <laughs> even though that sounds like a lazy way of going through it, the reality is we often gravitate toward those things that we're good at and those yep. things that we really desire to do. And there's nothing wrong with taking a path of ease. I actually uh, spoke to a friend the other day and I was like, do you pray for ease? Because I do. Like, I pray to God, like, I would like a life of ease. I've gone through enough. Yes. <laughs> Let's get the ease going, right? The ease, the comfort, the joy, right? And, and um, I think oftentimes we think that that might be selfish or self-focused, but the reality is almost everything I do comes from a limited resource, comes from a limited well. My energy that I pour into things, my time that I put into things, the the amount that I could care about something, 
I don't have an infinite amount of caring about things. I don't. Right. <laughs> At the end of the day, there has to be something for me, right? And um, and so I just uh, I navigated it by figuring out. What is it that I'm doing well at without even like without even a whole bunch of effort? And it was psychology. I was intrigued by it. I was interested in it. And when I went to get my master's, I totally fell in love with the field of uh, of psychology. Wow. And did you find yourself also gravitating towards those subjects of healing and trauma? Because that that is kind of where you're at right now. Did you find yourself on that same path early on as well? I think that it wasn't until I was exposed to to trauma recovery that I realized what it was about and how important it was and how much I needed it. So I have no problem with saying my husband and I went to therapy. Goodness, my son is 17 now. And it was when he was an infant infant. Like, I don't think he was even six weeks old as yet that we went to therapy and I went on quite a high horse feeling like I'm here for him. (laughs) here to be the supportive, loving wife of this man who's got all these issues, right? <laughs> and it wasn't until the therapist, he was like, neither of you have a trauma history, neither of you have da da da. He was just basically listing down some things like, y'all, you can work through this. And we were just sitting there looking at it and we looked at each other and he was like, well, do one of you have a trauma history? And I'm pretty sure his paperwork asked it. And I just said, no, because I just, I, that's not what I was there for. I was there to help my husband and him and his problems, right? And so right. it wasn't until I explained some of the stuff I had experienced that he was just like, yeah, like have a seat. That's important. Um, you're not going anywhere, you know? Mm. And um, I think that was the first time in my life that I really began to take my own healing seriously. And thank God <laughs> that I did. It's so interesting to me because and I've heard some of these like critiques of like the self-help industry of, you know, like we're putting the onus and the burden of of being whole on people, but not the systems that are affecting people, right? Whether it's family systems or social systems. So what are the relationships between what you can do individually versus at some point, the system's taking a greater responsibility for that? Yes. And so that's why I think healing in community is so important because the normal natural inclination is for us to blame ourselves or someone. In the absence of someone to blame, we will blame ourselves. If we do not recognize that, you know what? It's not you, it's the system, right? And I feel like I am called in some ways to recognize, to acknowledge, to call out some of those things. And I'll give an example. I think last year, maybe the year before, there was a that was going around for a women's conference and it was all men speaking (laughs) at this women's conference. And so I posted it on my page and another female pastor was like, you know, we're just kind of chasing foxes and rabbits at this point because, you know, posting this is not helping in any way. And I said, you know what? I believe it is. You know why I believe it is? And this is still talking about healing and community, right? I'm still talking about systemic problems, right? The reason that I believe it is helpful for us to sometimes post those things and give commentary on it, even if it's not going to address the system, I am called to help other people not feel alone in what they're experiencing. And there were people who commented on there and said, you know, my daughter saw this and they raised their eyebrows and they thought something was wrong with them. And I'm glad that you posted about this because I'm recognizing it's not them, it's the system. And so I think it's so important that we are in community and connection with others as we try to heal whatever individual things we're experiencing. It's so important to recognize it's not me, it's the system, right? So that even if the system will never be uh, completely changed in my lifetime, for me personally, justice means standing up for those things that I believe are right 
even if it's not going to completely change the system. But there's somebody else who recognizes they're not alone. They're not alone in their experience. They're not alone in raising that eyebrow like, mm, that looks, this seems weird, this seems <laughs> right. odd. Maybe it's just me. This, yeah. Why am I complaining about this thing, right? No, it's not you, honey. It's the system. And that should have never been, right? And so, um, and so I think that in some ways, that's a part of my calling as well. And I think a lot of people who've had traumatic experiences very serious about justice because we know what it is to have an experience of injustice, right? Um, and I think that that's a great thing. It, it gives us the impetus to go forward in community with others. That's so true. It's so true. And it's, it's interesting because I think there are some people who might take something like even this podcast. It's like, oh, you know, why are you griping? Why do you have to keep talking about these things. And there are some people who won't see value in, like you're mentioning, the community and raising the voice and saying, you're not alone in this experience. And I think, you know, you'd make a really good point. Like, just your personal opinion, why do you think people don't see value sometimes at like just looking at the mess and sharing in the shared terrible experience? Yeah. So one thing that uh, we need to recognize, and I was actually responding to in a therapist's group uh, yesterday, I think it was, where, where someone said that they had, you know, someone who experienced trauma and they just kind of want to talk about their trauma. So what should they do to help this person? Because they feel like they are interjecting helpful things, but what do I do to help them? As human beings, we want to know, what do we do? What do we do next? How do we get out of this? How do we help this person out of this? How do I not feel uncomfortable with your sharing of things that are making me feel uncomfortable? Because I don't know the answers, right? Yeah. We have to get to a place where we don't know the answers, but we still show up. Like that's to me, that to me is the pathway forward for healing and for helping that even if I don't know what to say, I'm showing up anyhow. Right. And honestly, if we think about how we work through trauma and get through trauma, I'm like, you know, some people just need you to bear witness to the suffering they've experienced. They just need you to sit there and be somebody who that, that they didn't go through it alone or they're not going through it alone. And they feel like I am going crazy. I'm losing my mind. And it's like, no, you're not. Everything around you is chaotic. You know, yeah. it's not you. And so um, and so people don't always see the value in it because people want to think, what is it I should do? Right. And, yeah. and that is that is the normal, natural, biological drive that we have to do something, get out of this situation. But one of the things that we really need for healing is this paradoxical thing of sitting with our experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I said, my mother-in-law was like, I don't want to go back and live in the past. Right. Nobody wants to go back and revisit the things that need to be revisited. But how much more healing? is it for someone to sit there and weep with you that to think, okay, what do I do next? Or what, do, right? As opposed to being in the relationship with you. I think about Job and his friends all the time, right? Mm. It says that Job's friends came and wept on the ground with him for seven days. They said not a word. So we can't sit with somebody in seven seconds. Seven seconds feels like, oh, if I sat here on your podcast for seven seconds, you would edit it out, <laughs> right? Um, okay. That seven seconds would be edited. And so we don't want to sit for seven seconds in silence with people, much less seven minutes, seven hours, seven days, but that's what they did. And I think that's when they were the best friends in the world, right? And so that's one thing. We don't want to sit with things. Also, we're not always aware of how important language is for working through some of our issues. And so that might sound like the opposite of what I just said, because I just said sitting in silence, right? But when you talk about like, why are y'all still talking about this? Y'all 
if someone's still talking about something, it's because something in there still needs to be worked out about it. They're not bringing it up because, oh, this is a fun topic to talk about. Let me talk about this thing that's painful for me again. Let me talk about being disconnected from my community who I grew up believing that they were right and they were going to do right. And now it feels like they're ostracizing me because I'm being who I actually am, right? That's traumatic and we need to be able to use language to navigate our experiences. Otherwise we'll feel really confused about why we feel the way we feel. But when we're able to talk through it, when we're able to like give a voice to the experiences we're having, that's when we can expand our experiences and work through them as opposed to feeling stuck in them. I really love that. And I think, you know, even just getting down to some of the like basics, I think sometimes it's it's hard to identify trauma in our life, right? So like, what is trauma? And maybe how sometimes does it manifest? And in particular, what is religious trauma? Yes, when I talk about trauma, I always have the example that I believe that trauma is any wounding we experience where the healing is not readily available for the amount of wounding we're experiencing. Mm. That could be physical wounding, it can be psychological and emotional wounding, right? But um, let me use the example of, you know, since this pandemic, I bought a whole bunch of little graters and choppers and all of these different things because I just knew I would be cooking. I've used them like maybe five or six times. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I didn't know how to use all of my items. And one of them, it had a really sharp blade because, you know, these choppers are for chopping through like, you know, beets and all sorts of hard vegetables with ease. And so I put the little slicer in and it didn't go in all the way. And I slapped down the edge of it. Well, of course, I overshot and slapped my finger right down on the little crisscross blades. And when I looked at my finger, like I could see that there was, like I could see the bone, put it that way. And so I could see the flesh was open and I could literally see the bone in my finger. There was not a healing that was immediately available for the wounding. I experienced a trauma to my finger. Very different from if I pricked my finger to check my blood sugar In general, unless you have a blood clotting issue, you're gonna experience a healing that's pretty comparable to the wounding that you experience. You're not gonna be bleeding still the next day. It's not gonna be in pain still a few hours later, right? That's the difference between what I would call trauma. However, if somebody gave you a whole bunch of pinpricks, you're probably going to feel it the next day, right? Right. So tiny things can also build up to be traumatic things. Little tiny experiences over and over, microaggressions as we call them, right? Having to deal with racial trauma, having to deal with a church that is rejecting of you and not accepting of the whole you and yet telling you to be your whole self, be your full self, but your whole self and your full self is not who they agree with you being, right? that's traumatic as well. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes we experience little tiny traumas that build up over time. Sometimes we experience a larger event um, and that's traumatic as well. Either way, if there's not enough healing available for the wounding that you experience, that's what I would consider to be a trauma. I've never heard that definition before, but I really like that. I think it's very accurate. It paints a like a a picture, because sometimes people feel like, am I using this word excessively or is this appropriate to what I've been through and what I'm feeling? Have you dealt with religious trauma, like in your own, whether it's stuff that you see people going through or in your own life, but like, what is religious trauma in particular? And it's something that I feel like a a lot of people that I've been coming in contact with, especially the LGBTQ community, they're still reeling from the rejection of their family, from the rejection of their churches. And, and and even though they're doing okay and they're still holding down their job and finding pockets of joy, like this is a part of them that's just 
it's real, really traumatic still. So maybe there are some examples of like, what is religious trauma and how do you actually begin to heal from something like that? So I would define religious trauma as anytime you are having to heal, right? From the religious environment that you were in, you probably experienced again, something traumatic that the healing that should be there is not as available as the wounding that you experienced. The wounding could be something, it could be anything from something extreme. When I say extreme, I mean like, you know, being involved in a cult that was intentionally doing you harm or doing others harm, right? It could be as simple, and I say simple with quotes around them, right? It could be as simple as you not being able to show up as who you are. You somehow being denigrated or believing that who you are is bad or wrong or dirty or unacceptable, right? Especially when you talk about a system that you've been taught to believe is right or is the authority on things, right? And so the message that you're getting from the system that is the authority, from the system that is supposed to be uh, loving and kind and telling you that they are doing the right thing is that you are wrong or is that you are like, and I don't mean you are wrong, like you did the wrong thing, right? I mean that you, your being, your experience is wrong. That's traumatizing. Um, one of the things that we know is that attachment is a buffer. When I say attachment, how well you attach to someone. And usually we're talking about your primary caregivers. Well, if your primary caregivers are immersed in a religious society or in a religious organization to the point that who they are and what their beliefs are about this religious organization are a part of who they are, right? It's yeah. like it's, these are their beliefs and they cast those beliefs onto you, but you don't really believe them, but you're being indoctrinated and you're uh, taught to believe these things, whether you, whether you really have thought through them or not, you've just been told this is right. Just like you're told, you know, if you're going to go ice skating, you know, you put on ice skates, right? Like you just, this is the right quote unquote right thing to do. And if you've been indoctrinated in that way, and then you start to break away from that, it's almost like a portion of who you are gets excised, gets left behind, gets broken apart. And that can feel traumatic. And so when I think about religious trauma, I'm always thinking about people who are either breaking away from or immersed in something that is just not ultimately healthy for them being who they are, being their full selves, which we all deserve to be. And if someone yeah. is taking that from you, that can be traumatic. So how does one begin to like heal from this? Like, I think there, there is a lot of, you know, sometimes it's just walking away for a period of time or walking away altogether. Anyone who's been in a toxic relationship or having uh, difficult family members, like, you see them often cut ties. Is that like the first step? I mean, how, how does somebody continue on the journey of healing without subjecting themselves to being re-traumatized? Yeah, I don't know that it's, I would call it the first step or call anything the first step mm -hmm. only because I think sometimes we're taking steps and we don't even realize it. So starting to take steps might be starting to question things, like starting to ask, okay, so um, I'll, I'll tell you one of my uh, children asked uh, about uh, hell and God and the devil. She was just like, so God put the devil in hell. So what's to say that God won't like me and put me in hell? Like, right, right. Like just starting to ask questions perhaps, right. Might be some of the first steps. Um, some people have been asking questions for years and feeling like they didn't get sufficient answers. And so that's not 
even feeling like a step for them, but they did take that step, right? Um, and so for some people, it might be gathering other people that can be helpful in this process, like people who will be allies, people who will be um, not just allies. I love what Dr. Yaba Blay said. She said accomplices. And she said someone corrected her and was like, accomplice has a negative connotation. It has that uh, sense of someone's doing something wrong with you. And she was like, that's exactly what I want. I want someone who's going to go against the grain. I want someone not mind getting in trouble for staying. And I right? It's better than being an ally. Allies don't have to get in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Allies are not necessarily putting skin in the game, but if you're my accomplice, now you might actually get in trouble for what it is you're doing, right? That's and that's what it takes is getting somebody who is, um, uh, who is on our side enough to recognize that, hey, what you're experiencing perhaps needs to be addressed. And I'm in your corner. Uh, research shows us that if we have a support ne network of at least one, we will mm. be successful. <laughs> it's, hey. a, it's not the Hallmark commercial. <laughs> it's not the Lifetime movie, right? Yeah. It's not all the people sitting around and supporting each other at the table. It's not that. It's having at least one person who will say, I am with you. I am for you, right? I'm in your corner. And sometimes that starts in therapy. And so I always recommend that people go to someone who is willing and, and find this out, right? And it might be someone who's in your religion. It might be someone, if you're a Christian, who's a Christian therapist, but who is willing to say, listen, like I recognize that Christianity has been damaging to several people, to a lot of people, right? Or you might decide to get someone who's not a Christian and who doesn't believe in those things so that you can completely break away from the things that you've been indoctrinated with. Not necessarily that you're breaking away from the God you still believe in, right? but that you're breaking away from a religious organization that you feel is not healthy for you. And mm -hmm. so the steps, uh, the first steps, right? Whatever those first steps are, whatever works for you is perfectly fine as a first step. But recognizing that you're experiencing something traumatic is probably one of the first things, right? At least recognizing that, you know what? This isn't healthy or this isn't good for me. And that's yeah. it's perfectly fine to start wherever you are and to go from there. I love this. What are some recommendations of services for trauma survivors, services that somebody could seek out to say, okay, I want to start this healing journey and I don't know where to start? Yes. So I will say um, I am very much at any port in the storm okay. <laughs> kind of person because I think that people do what helps them until they can do better. I think for the most part, people do what they can until they can do perhaps uh, a little better for themselves or whatnot. BetterHelp and a lot of these therapy in the box places, I actually have an article saved to read through that um, BuzzFeed or someone just put out about why therapists are coming against, you know, a lot of these organizations. I know some things on the back end, which is that they don't pay therapists well, and they don't pay them kind of what their worth is. And then they also market themselves in a way that is probably not always honest for the consumers. And I'm not saying this about BetterHelp in specific. I think a lot of these therapy in a box places or therapy app places are giving generic things and it's not necessarily going to be the specific help that people need that they can get from a individualized therapist. It's just, oh, here we have a therapist available and we're going to throw you to them, even if they're not someone who specializes with the things that you're dealing with. And hopefully they'll learn along the way, but no, <laughs> like we should not be doing it in that particular manner. And then also, I think sometimes people are sold a bill of goods that we can't promise we can produce. I will never tell somebody, I can promise you, you'll be over your trauma, you know, by the end of this 13 weeks or what have you, right? right. For some people, we might go through a 13 week set of sessions. I, I do EMDR. So that's one of the things that tends to be a little more fast paced, kind of fast tracking through some traumatic experiences, but I can't guarantee, right? I can't guarantee that your complex trauma is going to be resolved in a certain amount of time or your anxiety. We have very 
regimented ways of dealing with anxiety. It's not necessarily easy, but it's pretty simple. So I'm just curious, you know, what's alive for you right now? Like as a, a psychologist, as somebody who's like, I want to help people. Like what are, what are the most alive things for you in this moment? Or this period of life? I love that question. (laughs) What's alive for you right now? Oh my goodness, I'm so going to use that probably in multiple settings. Um, What's alive for you right now? I think, again, the idea of wholeness and healing, and I'm very into presence right now. That is something that I don't think I realized. Again, and this is, again, where people might not recognize that they've experienced something traumatic, but I don't think it was until I looked around and saw my family one time, we were playing games and I realized how the norm for them seemed to be connected and not my default. Even after years and years of therapy, years and years of healing and wholeness and, and lots of work that I've done, connection is not my default. And so in presence is not really my default. Drifting off and being somewhere else in my head is my default. That like feels normal and natural for me. And that kind of actually reminds me of something I wanted to mention with another question that you asked is that, you know, this idea of healing from trauma, it is not always going to feel comfortable. In fact, it will feel uncomfortable if you've been immersed in religious trauma or any other kind of trauma it's going to feel unfamiliar. It, it, it will feel uncomfortable. I and mean, I will often say that, you know, even telling yourself that you love yourself and that you deserve freedom and joy and healing and all of those good things, it will feel uncomfortable and it will feel uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar, but not because it's untrue. And mm-hmm. so what comes alive for me right now is the idea of being present, is being intentional about being present. One thing that I uh, just Uh, recently was thinking through is the fact that one of the things I would say to myself when coming across perhaps any scars that I have from traumatic experiences or thinking through traumatic experiences, one of the things I would say, I would put my hand to my chest and say, I survived that Mm -hmm. because that was helpful for me to stay present, to know that, yes, even though that's something that's popping up for me, I'm not in the past. I don't have to live, you know, right in the past, but I'm, I'm in the present and I survived that. That has like a time boundary, past tense, survived, right? It's something that happened and not in the present, but I no longer need that language. And so I'm very into how we are shaping our worlds that we want to live in, in a way that's whole and healing for ourselves, for those around us, very much being present with ourselves and even how we use language to perhaps shape some of those things, right? Because I no longer need the, I survived that language as much, but I do need to remind myself that I'm whole and that I'm healing. And that I'm, you know, loved, that all of me is cherished and cared for. Those are the reminders that I want for myself right now. And those are the things that make me feel really alive. How how do you get to that place of like, you know, from a wound being open to a wound just being a scar? Like, do you look back on your experiences and still have emotion about it? Like, how have you marked those transitions for you of like, oh, I survived that? When is that a point that that someone can say, okay, I survived that and I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards wholeness? Yeah. So honestly, from the moment you survived something, you survived it, right? Mm. Um, Whether you tell yourself that or not, we don't always give ourselves the updated messages. So that's really me giving myself an updated message to remind myself of what's actually true. And I'm not talking about using language in a way that we fool ourselves or we trick ourselves into thinking we're doing better than we are. I'm talking about using language to tell ourselves the truth. And what is the truth? 
probably whatever popped in your mind when I said, tell yourself the truth, right? It's different for different people, but I'm telling myself the truth. The truth is I survived that, but I don't always need that language for the particular season that I'm in. So one, one example that I give is, you know, my children in the winter, they would leave the house without a jacket on, or they would leave without an undershirt on. And we had to just drill it in their heads. When you leave the house, you will wear a jacket. <laughs> That's period, right? When you leave the house, you will wear an undershirt. That's winter language. So I don't always need that same language or that same message, right? And my daughter actually said, when I was giving this example to them and telling them that I, I did a little TikTok video about them, she said, she was like, no, I really did think that we needed to wear our jackets in the spring and the summer as well. <laughs> so I was like, my bad as a parent that I didn't shift the language and help you understand that that was a message you needed then, but not now. And sometimes we do that to ourselves. We're still giving ourselves these old messages. I survived. And we're keeping ourselves kind of in survival mode. It might have been good. It was really good and well for me to tell myself I survived that. And sometimes I might still say I survived that. But I want to add something else to that message because it's not all I need in this season of being alive and thriving, right? I need more than just the survival messages. I need the messages about thriving, right? I need the messages about how my whole being is worth it and worthy, right? And so, yeah, it's, it starts with recognizing perhaps sometimes the language that we're using and how we're shaping our experiences and what we've experienced. Do you still look back on things and think, do you still feel emotion about the pain that you have? Or do you not have that, that sadness or grief there anymore? Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you used the word grief. I honestly believe there are some things that we may grieve until the day that we die. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I, there are some things that we may be angry about until the day that we die. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that we ought to be, unless this world somehow magically or miraculously changes from being a world that it, where people experience harm and where people experience injustice and where people are downtrodden sometimes, right? There are some things that we ought to be angry about. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And there are some things that we might get sad about and there's nothing wrong with that. They're real human experiences. But I do believe that as we heal, things should not have the same emotional valence as when it first happened, right? And sometimes we do, sometimes we're 20 years out from an experience and it brings up the same amount of anger and the same amount of sorrow and the same. And I honestly do believe that that means there's some more healing that can happen there. I don't think that we have to stay stuck at the same valence or the same level of the emotion about an experience. But I also don't think that we have to change it completely. Sometimes you're angry because anger is the right response that you should have. And so, yay, glory to God that you're angry. I, uh, just the other day, someone was saying something about not being angry and being kind instead. Of course, I don't think that those two oppose each other. Sometimes it's a kindness for me to be angry about something, right? I said, mm -hmm. my anger keeps me off of death row. <laughs> so, so I'm glad that I'm being angry so that I don't have murderous thoughts about this person, because that's yeah. what happens when I try to put aside my anger or stuff my anger. Then I'm thinking all sorts of negative things that you don't want me to be thinking. I would rather embrace and acknowledge the fact that I'm angry about something or that I'm sad about something or that there's still some things to be grieved and some things to be outwardly, you know, grief, grief is the inward experience. Mourning is the outward experience. So perhaps there are some things that I need to mourn, right? And we don't give ourselves 
when we don't give ourselves that opportunity, I think we prolong the experience of harm. And then also one of the things that was important, I'll use my finger again as an example. If I just had my finger gaping open like that, it probably would have never healed. It would have probably gotten secondary an infection. It would have probably, you know, who knows if it would have had to be amputated from that experience, right? I had to bandage it up close up the wound, right? And sometimes that's what we need. And, you know, when we talk about religious trauma, that's what we need. We need a buffer between ourselves and that thing that we experience, right? We need something that bandages up those wounds, something that puts a, a little bit of space between ourselves and the rest of the world right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. So like, even when I think about people talking about deconstructing, right, their faith and deconstructing their beliefs and whatnot, yeah, you might need to bandage some things. Everyone might not need access to you. You might not need to listen to what your pastor had to say about or their opinion about it, right? If they're the person who harmed you, especially if this is the organization that brought you harm, you might need a band-aid between you and them so that you can heal appropriately. And yeah. who knows, you might revisit it. Guess what? I used a chopping uh, thing this week, <laughs> right? So it's not that I don't use it anymore, right? I've revisited that thing but I'm not, I don't have a gaping wound. I didn't use it for a while with this gaping wound on my hand, right? And so there's nothing wrong with moving yourself out of a situation that was harmful so that you can have the space to. I think it's so interesting how the pandemic created that space for so many people and they realized, oh, wow, I have the room now to, to ask the tough questions or to not be so stuck in the routine of continuing in community that just has been harming me in ways that I haven't been willing to acknowledge, right? So it's interesting how that that really put a catalyst for many people in their journey. Absolutely. Giving the space that you need is so valuable and so important. Because again, if you have a gaping wound, um, if you are not attending to it in some way, you will get an infection. That is yeah. the nature of reality of wounds, right? If you have a, a wounding from an experience with a person or organization, institution, whatever, you probably need to put some distance between yourself and that. And you're not a bad person for doing that. You are a healing person. And again, those are the messages we have to remind ourselves of, right? We have to keep telling ourselves, I'm healing. And we might have to tell ourselves, I'm grieving, right? So that we can normalize the situation for ourselves. And again, not feel like we have to blame ourselves because we have no one else to blame. Hmm. So I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Question that maybe some of our listeners could benefit from is like, what does forgiveness look like in the process of healing and not being re-traumatized? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that as well. I think we have to define for ourselves what forgiveness looks like for us. I will give you the general definition that I use when I talk about forgiveness. And then also it reminds me of something you asked before, which is, or you mentioned before, you mentioned overcoming. And I, I really want to be very intent on telling people we have to define what overcoming is right? We might have to think through what it looks like to overcome a situation, or we'll always be reaching this thing that's been undefined in our lives. We'll always be saying, well, you know, I'm still not over it yet. Well, we got to figure out what over it looks like, right? Because over it doesn't mean that the situation is going to come up and I have no emotions about it whatsoever, right? The idea that you will not have emotional responses to experiences uh, that you you've had is not really a good goal to have because you want right. to have emotions. You want to be connected to the 
the whole of you, to all of who you are. And so that's really important. And then when we talk about forgiveness, it depends on how we define it. I have a friend who said there are some people that she's never forgiven and she will never forgive. And she said, I sleep well at night. And I love when she <laughs> says that because I'm like, good for you. Like, again, I'm for wholeness and healing, even if it doesn't look like what I've been taught is what wholeness and healing should look like. If somebody is saying that they sleep well at night and they're not forgiving this person, perhaps they have a different definition of forgiveness than I have right? I use the definition from the Stanford Forgiveness Project. It's a project by, I think, the Greater Good Society that they've, you know, done a lot of research into forgiveness. What they, in fact, said that they've looked at the world's major religions, Christianity, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, but they've looked at all of the different thinking models, and they said, we could not find enough people who were actually practicing what they said they believed mm. <laughs> to be able to use this definition. So is it hard? It is hard. That's first and foremost. Let's recognize that, right? But the definition they use is that it is the conscious decision. And I love that part. It's a conscious decision. It's not a feeling. You might not feel like you've forgiven X, Y, or Z, right? But it says it is a conscious decision to relinquish resentment, whether the person deserves it or not, from somebody who's harmed you, whether the person or group institution deserves it or not. I love each part of that, right? So it's a conscious decision. You're relinquishing resentment, which I, resentment comes from a French word that means to feel again, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of being stuck in a feeling and constantly feeling the same thing over and over again for an experience, right? So relinquishing the resentment that you have, right? For a person or group who has harmed you, whether or not they deserve it, right? Uh, not about them. And I know some people will say, uh, no, if you say for, you're forgiving this person, it is about them. It's not about you. Like you're letting them off the hook. It's not about that. Uh, perhaps they still need to pay restitution. Perhaps they still need to be in an institution that causes them to release some of their freedoms, right? And not be able to harm other people. Uh, perhaps that's the truth. And perhaps we need to remove this person from power so that they're not, again, harming individuals under their care or who should have been under their care, right? So it's not taking away the consequences. It's simply saying that I'm choosing not to feel this exact same way for the rest of my life about this exact same thing. I'm mm. choosing not to keep feeling the same level of anger or this same level of resentment for this person whether they deserve it or not has nothing to do with me. My portion is that I'm choosing to let go of this. So just know that if you, whatever you've survived, right? And well, when people say, you know, you've survived 100% of your worst days, and it might sound cliche and it might sound like just a platitude, but the reality is, I mean, I think it's Lucille Clifton in her poem says, won't you celebrate with me that every day of my life, something has tried to kill me and failed, right? <laughs> Hello? Yeah. And so celebrate yourself that you are here. And I know that that's not even always something people feel like celebrating. Let's just be real. Some days people wake up and they don't even want to survive their trauma and they don't want to survive their grief, but I hope they survive anyway. I hope everyone listening to this podcast begins to have hope again that they can survive even more of their days, right? And that better days are coming. That is that is the the crux of hope, is that something better is coming than this. So I hope that you clap that. You have survived 100% of your worst days. If you need to talk to someone or are interested in low-cost counseling, you can check out BetterHelp.com or look into payment options from local therapists in your area. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. 
In addition to curious conversations, I am so grateful for the conversations that this podcast is sparking amongst you all. If you're enjoying the content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you want to follow our guest today, clinical psychologist Dr. D. Knight, you can do so on Twitter at Dr. D.E.E. Knight. If you'd like to reach me, you can write me at Kendra Arsenal with an X on Instagram or Facebook. And you can also follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.